0: It's interesting the fact the altimeter's on my hand, but I'm in the delta track going down to I haven't got the time to check on the height, but mentally I'm reading off the height. 2,500 feet, 2,000 feet, 1,500 feet. And I'm really getting close. And I just got to a stage where 1,000 feet, but I was so close. I can remember thinking, this is shit or bust. And I came over the top of him, skidded, and he looked at me with his biggest smile, and, yeah! And I was like, pull it! And we instantly just knew by my expression, pulled reserve, I spun around, threw my pilot ship, went far out of the ripcord, because cranes in the sixties hit this ripcord, looked down, and I thought, I'm in the chase, you know? And I just thought, it just seems unfair. That's a bummer. And to my surprise, the parachute opened and we were second and a half away from impact. And uh, Leo's wife was filming for the ground and all she could hear me was screaming, pull it. She turned away from the camera and burst into tears. She just thought, that's it, we're both in.
1: Andy, how are you, brother?
0: I'm good, mate. How are you?
1: Yes, phenomenal. Absolutely delighted you can join us today on the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Um, For our friends at home, Andy is a former Royal Marines commando, like myself. And to say this gentleman has an absolutely adventure-packed history doing all of those boys' own things that that some of us try and do a bit of it, but a lot of which we just aspire to. And um, I'm delighted you've come on the show, mate. Thank you. No, thanks for asking me. So um, I'm just going to start with a bit of video, Andy. Bear with me. And this is you standing on a bridge... Here we go, let's have a look. You won't be able to see this, but our viewers at at, at home will. Nice. Do you mind if I go, mate? (laughs) Yep. Brilliant. Um. The funny thing about that clip, after you breathe a sigh of relief when, when your chute opens, is the guy saying to the other guy, do you mind if I go, mate? He's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I would have thought you'd be so um, sort of keyed up by that stage. Like, no, 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 I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. But uh, it, it all looks very relaxed.
0: It's something you eventually get used to. I mean, For me, on that actual jump, that was after a 28-year layoff from base jumping and I was just getting back into it. Wow, this, this, sorry, this jumped 28 years after you started? Yeah, well, I started base jumping when I was told I was going to be a dad. I just thought I got responsibility, so I actually started base jumping. And I always said once the kids grew up, I would get back into it. And eventually, as um, the kids were in their late 20s, I decided to get back into it. So I went to Croatia Met an old friend who was running a base school out there, 50 cow, and he took me back to the course. Wow. Nothing's changed. Still heart-thumping
1: moments. Yes, I bet. What happens if your drogue chute, so for, for people at home, when you skydive, you chuck out a, a mini parachute, which then pulls out your, your main canopy. What would happen, Andy? I mean, does that... Does that
0: mini-drogue ever snap off? It shouldn't do, but with base jumping, there are no second chances. You haven't got the height for reserve. So if the parachute fails to work correctly, start walking towards the bright light.
1: Yeah, it's kind of... There's just no margin for error, is there, whatsoever? No, that's why it's heart-thumping moments. God. Right, let's have a look at the next video let's get us back onto the desktop um we'll look at these Andy, and then we'll we'll discuss your fascinating story no problems now we've got you and a, a group of base jumpers hiking up to the top of a what can only be described as a precipice um that'd be a in Italy. right We've got no volume on this one. I don't know if that's my technicals or.
0: No, that's the actual videotape. There's no sound to it.
1: Wow. It really just looks. Here we go. See you. Now you look very calm. Yeah, I wasn't calm inside. That's for sure. Grateful to be alive. I'm. 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 I'm guessing. Um, it's funny when you watch a base jumper jumping off a cliff. They, it. It looks like the, the more you descend, the closer you are to the cliff and the closer you are to hit it. But I'm. I'm guessing that no, actually, you kind of move.
0: Well, the thing with the high cliffs and it's like with El capitan which i first jumped in 1980 that started me on the the base scene the first five seconds you don't go anywhere so when you leap off you start falling the cliff is right behind you and it's like being in the underground when you start to see the posters going fast and faster as the train starts accelerating away it's exactly the same on the actual base jump but at five seconds you've picked up enough speed that when you alter your body position just like a skydive you can start to move horizontal along the ground. So you can actually get further distance away from the cliff face. So the high cliffs are actually quite safe because you can get around 600 feet clearance of the cliff. So it's not as dangerous as people perceive. Unlike the really low stuff that you just don't get the distance.
1: Do they call that delta tracking like they do in skydiving? Exactly the same. There's no difference. Yeah. Got you. Right, let's look at the next one. It's a great way to start a podcast, this. Sorry, technical skills, everyone. I've got to put us on desktop. I'm going to turn the audio down. Let's go for that again. So, this one you're getting um, connected up to what looks like a a giant zip wire or, or death slide. Water jump off f- from a zip wire. How did that come about?
0: Well, Sean, who's an ex uh, Royal Marine Commando, he actually owns ZipWorld. So when I went to see him, he was telling me that he was going to get Rocket Man to go up the zip wire for publicity and he was going to get a base jumper to jump it. Well, I immediately said, I'll do it. Sean knew my background from the early days of base jumping, helping to pioneer the base city in the UK. So he said, Right, your project. So the problem I had with the, uh, the zip wire is the speed. Because we pay the parachute for low jumps for a fast opening. But when you've got speed, you don't particularly want a fast opening. So that was my first problem. I had to look on the, the location, and the landing area, all the ground side was slate. And I just thought, trouble with slate, if you have a bad landing, you'd actually get cut very badly. So the safety option seemed to be the the water gel, which I wasn't looking forward to because I knew it was going to be freezing cold. The next thing was how I was going to actually come off, as it were, because you got no second chances. So I had to make sure that when I disengaged, I was going to fall away cleanly, face to earth. So I had a harness made up. The difference was skydiving harness. Instead of the risers being from your shoulders, I had it from the back of my back. So it tilted me slightly forwards. So I had a harness made up for a cutaway system. So I wore that, plus the parachute with his own harness. The risers from the cutaway system were connected to the zip wire. And we did a test run to record the speed, which I personally thought was too fast. I didn't really want that hard opening. So what I did, I took two pilot chutes to create drag. And that slowed me down enough that I deemed it safe enough to do the low-altitude base pack method. And as I went down, I had my marker points, which was my highest point. And all I had to do was release and throw the drug out. And uh, exactly as I thought would happen, worked. You always have that thing when you do something brand new. Have you covered all the angles? Do you mentally go through the whole thing? I've done this, done that. All the boxes are ticked. So the only thing that's stopping me is the mental game. You just got to say to yourself, believe in yourself, believe in the method. Take a deep breath then the journey starts. My gosh, and is there any kind of risk of drowning? Well, I'm I'm guessing there is. Not when you've got a safety boat. (laughs) Now, I was expecting when I hit the water to see this roar of engine, and this boat comes zooming towards me. Instead, all I saw was the boat going chug, 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 chug towards me, (laughs) as I was treading water. The interest Mm -hmm. with the zip wire one, is the first time it had been done in the UK. Never been done before in the UK. It's only been done abroad. As far as we know, it's the first commercial zip wire that's been base jumped. Wow! Congratulations. Did you have a have to wear a life jacket, or was that too too cumbersome? There had just been too much with two harnesses and a life jacket. The fact I had a safety boat then it was going to get to me. I deemed it not necessary. There's no currents or anything. It's just a lake
1: right got you got you right let's have a look, look at another, the next video
0: I wonder what Chris's face was like.
1: <laughs>
0: Not my problem, <kingdom>. I'm clear.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um, this one was, was it called Ghost Plane?
0: Oh, the Ghost Plane, yes. Um, again, what we're actually doing, I'm jumping with three parachutes. So the first parachute, I'm always going to disengage from it. We call it a Ghost Plane because... Normally when you do canopy relative work, when you link up parachutes, uh, you do what we call a biplane, two guys, and you normally split just before you land. But what's unusual about it is the fact that when I disengaged, it left my parachute with the other guy who keeps it flying, by ensuring they his feet are tightly into the risers. So as soon as they disengaged, the parachute retains its shape. So you yeah, have this unusual thing of a guy flying, two parachutes, but there's one guy. There's a guy missing, hence they named it the Ghost Plane. A lot of fun.
1: Wow. Yeah, I'm just going back to it to get it clearer in my mind what's going on here. So you, sh- so you've hooked up in mid air. He's yep. he's he's done the old feet around your
0: risers. I've tried to ensure we're upwind, so the disengaged parachute eventually, when he releases it, will land back on the airfield. Ah, I see.
1: Is there no risk he was going to get entangled with the parachute or is that part of the,
0: I guess you factor that in? It's probably why I was giggling afterwards because I knew I was perfectly all right. <laughs> I left him with the problem. But no, it's, it's not a problem because all he has to do is kick his feet out. Again, it's just the perception. It's actually very safe to do.
1: Yeah, it looks like your chute has just remained open. Is Is that what was supposed to happen? Exactly
0: that, and that's where he has to put his feet tightly into the risers so wow. it doesn't cause any slack when I release. Have a look at
1: My gosh, so we're, we're looking at you wing walking. That's a good laugh. I thought I enjoyed that. Well, you look happy in
0: all of your shots. <laughs> the thing with wing walking again, if you analyze it, you're in the harness, you're tightly strapped in, you fix the airplane. So there are no issues. And all you've actually got is just the airflow. So in the way, it feels exactly the same as free fall. So then he risk factors on the landing side if the pilot messes up
1: yeah then you get pancaked.
0: <laughs> that's why I choose not to think about that side i focus on the positive side he's a good pilot did you have to think about death a
1: lot um andy i i watch you you'd probably know this gentleman i watched a documentary it was gosh it was about fifteen years ago now and There was a former SAS chap and he was, you know, passionate about his base jumping. But over the course of this documentary, you, you started to get the impression that this guy was getting edgy. Like his nerves were, were starting to become a factor of, you know, I mean, obviously you're going to be nervous, but it it was like he was second guessing himself and, um, they went up to the famous cliffs in, in Norway. And I don't know if it was there or if it was shortly after, but he, I don't know what the vernacular is, but I'm, I'm going to say he creamed in and um, that was him. Good night, Vienna. Is Do you know the
0: chap I'm on about? Can't say I do. Uh, depends how far you're going back. Yeah, it was
1: a while ago now, I I couldn't tell you for the life of me when it was, but um, I just always think in a documentary when you see someone being nervous and at the end of the documentary they die, it was the same with that canoeist chap that tried to, was it canoe from New Zealand to Australia or, or, or the other way around, and he set off, he was in tears going, oh what am I doing, I've got children, I've got a family, and he got within 10 miles of the the coastline and um, his canoe overturned and he couldn't get back in it. He was too exhausted. And the tragic thing was all his family were waiting, like literally on the beach for sort of daddy to finish this record breaking canoe. And uh, um, they'd heard on the radio, a distress signal. But nobody could work out what what this guy was saying. When they later played it back, you could hear him saying, "I'm I'm the canoe guy. I'm the canoe guy." And uh,
0: yeah, I I, I I saw that documentary. Very very sad. Oh, incredibly, it was all, you know, it was just so
1: tragic. And I said to um, one of our bootneck brothers yesterday. Mike Buster Keating, who, like me, has just run the length of the UK. And I said, Mike, are you up for rowing across the Atlantic? And uh, Mike came back and said, I'm not sure about that, Chris. You know, I've got kids. And I hadn't thought of it like that. I thought rowing the Atlantic was statistically fairly safe. It seems, I think you, I think very few people have drowned doing it, but yeah, it's that thing, isn't it? When you are a parent, it's not
0: just you, you've got to think about. I mean, totally, that's one of the reasons I start base jumping, because um, the risk factor is high. There are no second chances. And a friend of mine, Frank Dunlan, was killed on a base jump. And at the time, his wife was expecting. And they always logged into me, you know, the fact that he never ever got to see his son he still never got to see him, and was raised without a father. And I just thought, you know, the day I'm a dad, I just won't go down that road and take those extra risks. Um, and I'm thankful I made that decision, having had two sons. Would you,
1: as an as a new parent, as when your kids were around five, like mine is now, would would you have climbed Everest if you'd if you'd got a place? <clears throat>
0: That's a difficult one. You know, because to, to get a slot is extremely hard. Um, I don't think I could answer that until I'm in that position. Mm. But I think some things that, I don't know, you're your own person, what joins you. Yeah. And not to be that person is quite hard.
1: Yeah, I've been thinking about it because Everest was has always been a a, a dream of mine, and um, I was fortunate to chat to another brother of ours, Nims Dye, on the podcast who summited what was it the twelve highest mountains in the world in record breaking time, and he offered to to um, train me to climb Everest. And I also remember Aunt Middleton made a documentary fairly recently about his sure that. Yeah, but of course he's got several children, is not he? Four, maybe even five. Um, and in that documentary, you saw just how close he came to not making it back down. Um, yeah. yeah well, it, so, to you. i just say these are the kind of things, Andy, that my my brain works at a million to one all the time anyway, and I'm always... It's probably some things that other people would just not think so much about. I really kind of like think of the moral kind of element.
0: I mean, you also gotta look at the, the larger picture, you know, who's the team, who's making the decisions, you know, are they very professional that if the conditions are not right, they'll make that decision no matter how close you are to walk away. And that's one of the hardest things is to make that decision to walk away. And I've had on the base jump, you know, my brother Pete did the very first cliff base jump in the UK. And after watching him go off, when it was my turn, I stood on the edge for about 15 minutes. And my other brother said, you know, you don't have to go. And I looked at him and said, too right, I don't have to go. And what I found, I'd used all my adrenaline watching my brother jump. I had nothing left for me, you know. And I actually had to say to myself, you know, there's nothing wrong with walking away it's the sensible thing to do it doesn't feel right walk away yeah you've got to live to fight another day
1: haven't you there's always another day and that's what you remember definitely oh and we're back to you i'm just going to play your base jump again nice very nice do you mind if i go mate if i go mate yep (laughs) yep be my guest um incredible andy just absolutely incredible i'm i'm a big fan of travis pastrana i don't know if you've if you've seen any of his stuff yeah i've seen he did the uh no shoot jump as well yes he did and um he's my favorite athlete i think i think he's the world's if you have to pick one He's certainly, for me, he's the, just the world's best athlete ever. Um, all his bi- his um, dirt biking and his um, base jumping and all the other crazy stuff he's done. But I remember they took his dad, <laughs> right? His dad uh, is an ex-Marine, USMC, and they literally got him on a bridge just like this in the States, And not only did his dad never, ever done a a parachute jump before, certainly hadn't done a base jump, but he did a (laughs) backflip on his very first base jump, which for anyone listening, I'm sure Andy would agree with me, kind of flies in the face of all all the safety rules, Andy, does it not? It certainly does. Uh, I wouldn't do it. (laughs) I'm that stupid I would I definitely would do a base jump well I mean I've done 30 jumps now I think between my military course and my 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 AFF skydiving course um, so I I don't think I turned out I don't know again very different as a father if I was single I'd throw
0: myself off this bridge without any you know deep the thing to remember nowadays is with the bass scene, is everything's changed. The equipment's been designed for the job. It's, it's been manufactured for base. All the safety stuff that we've learned over the years has been incorporated in equipment. Now people get trained to do a base jump. Totally different to my time when we are using conventional skydiving gear and no one to teach you. So it's learning it, actually doing it, you know. That's so it's, very- it's, it's a lot safer. Now the strange thing is, When you do a lot of base jumps in a short period of time, it actually becomes normal. It's just like high board diving. Instead of going to water, you know, throw a parachute out to deploy the parachute.
1: Yes, I remember when I was skydiving that it 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 just becomes such second nature to throw yourself out that plane without without any nerves whatsoever. Um. The only time I did get nervous, I don't know if you've got any viewpoint on this Andy, is I went up once in the morning and I had a mega hangover. We'd been caning it at a barbecue the night before and I realised when I got in the door I wasn't my usual just throw yourself out and do a load of somersaults and don't even think about it. I was really yeah, well, I was feeling nervous. Is is that anything that is, is that sort of well known in skydiving?
0: It is, and with skydiving, the early stages we haven't got many jumps. One, if you leave gaps between jumps, you still get the nerves. It's when you do sort of you know, a couple hundred jumps that side goes. But what you probably notice is your thought process was slowed down. And that's what made you more nervous because of the alcohol side. Certainly back in the old days, alcohol and skydiving seemed to go hand in hand. So you did a day skydiving, then you did a hardcore drinking session and started again the next morning. But times have changed. We don't see that so much nowadays. When people finish jumping, they tend to go home. Don't see the hardcore drinking days as we did back in the 70s. Yeah, I
1: remember it. I it. Have you ever jumped
0: at Sebastian in Florida? I have actually, but two years ago doing the canopy formations. Back in the Marines days, we all did the single column stack, but now they do the pyramid. So I wanted to gain some experience in the pyramid stuff, what we call the diamond formations. So my oldest son was going out there. So I tagged along the trip and it was fantastic. You know, just experiencing large formations. Changed my thought process, what it was like.
1: Wow. I've just got up on the screen your, I'm guessing it's your Royal Marines stack. You can't see the colour of the of the shoots in this black and white picture, but.
0: No, it's a cracking shot because it's a side profile. Yes. So you see all
1: the individuals. Who's the um, the guy that's separate? Is that a cameraman or is that a guy just attempting to join the stack? Cameraman.
0: we had three of them to film in different angles
1: yeah and i was trying to work out how you did it time wise and then of course i i'm forgetting that you you hop and pop basically don't you 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 pull your chute as soon as you're out the door so you get so much
0: more time in the air we do and one of the things we learned was when everyone exits the aircraft at the same time the guys were jumping docking on the bottom of the stack they spent so much time trying to make the parachutes die faster, using muscle strength to pull the risers down, the time it was their turn, they ran out of strength. So what we did in '85, the first attempt at the world record, we staggered the aircraft. So we had one aircraft fly at 15,000 feet, the next aircraft came at 12,000 feet, and the last one came at 10,000 feet. Wow. So when the bottom guys left the aircraft, you actually freed falling past the stack then throw the you only just underneath it, waiting for your turn, sliding in and making approach. Now that was far more successful. What a clever
1: idea. Yes. Right, let's... I'm just going to flick through your um, photographs and I'll just pin you a few questions, if I may. Yeah, fire away. Ah, so there's the cover of your book. Um, so... We'll, we'll, we're going to cover the contents as we talk through the podcast, but like I said at the beginning, Andy's done everything, folks. Um, and I think Type T is, this is the adventurous personality, Andy, right? Type T is a personality, risk taker, thrill seeker,
0: and it seemed appropriate.
1: Yes, what a great name for a book. Brilliant what I do um folks I suggest you grab a copy of Andy's book I've read the first couple of chapters and and it, like I say it's it's very very gripping extremely gripping I'll put a link under the podcast so you can get straight to Amazon and grab yourself a copy right we've got um I don't know if this is you carrying the camera, but looking very uh, Mujahideen. That will
0: be me carrying the camera. Wow. What's the story behind this one, Andy? Well, that goes back to 1981. My uh, second brother had just been out to Afghanistan filming the war, coming back and sending the film footage to the TV networks. And I was listening to the stories and thought, wow, you know, what a story, what an adventure. And he approached me to look, I'm going back to do your second trip, but I'm gonna carry more camera gear. Would you like to come along?" And as I was in between jobs at the time, and I was just thinking, yeah, what an adventure. So I didn't spend much time thinking about it. I just said, definitely, I'll, I'm there with you, brother. I should have put more thought into it. For some strange reason, I had this idea. My brother has a large camera with a long lens, would be on the hill, filming some sort of action about a mile down the road. So the was a the camera with a very short lens and he filmed from the front. So that was a bit of a shock. And this is
1: Afghanistan in the 80s, you say? It's Afghanistan, 1981, when the Russians were there. Right. My gosh, that was one hell of a conflict, wasn't
0: it? Well, we've just learned the same process. You know? The Afghans have this attitude, there's no time period. They will stay there for a long stay they feel they need to fight for it
1: yes so you had the soviets that invaded afghanistan um you had the mujahideen which was being backed and trained by the the cia um fascinating um putting the 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 tragedy of it all to one side what a fascinating conflict um You had the might of of the Soviet Union against these rebel fighters. Um, There's a few... There's a book I read recently called The Bear Trap, which is how Afghanistan is colloquially referred to by the fighters um, for obvious reasons. Also watched a film called Ninth comp Ninth Company, I think in Russian it's La La Rota, um, and that was from the Soviet perspective of these um, guys that volunteered to fight, found themselves in the parachute regiment, and um, yeah, ended up in some serious serious hand to hand combat. Were you? Did you see a lot of action there, Andy?
0: We. Well, we had a couple of actions where the mujahideen basically had this attitude. They'd wake up in the morning, stretch their arms and say, right, he's cooking breakfast, we've got an hour and a half, let's go attack the outpost. So they all just get together, go down, fire some shots at the outpost, come back, have breakfast, and then basically relax for the day, then go back at sunset. But on one occasion, we were just sleeping out in the open next to this track. We woke up and the mujahideens were sort of running around my brother said, can you hear anything? He said, hear anything? He said, listen. So I can hear vehicles. He said, exactly. The only one that's got vehicles around here nowadays is the Russians. So we suddenly realized what the Mojins were doing. They were just grabbing all their gear. So we just grabbed all the camera gear and started following them. What you notice of the Russian patrol, there's armored vehicles. As we're driving down the road, they're just basically shooting up the area. So you've got this constant fire. You can hear the find firing the single shots back. And our group managed to get ahead of the, the patrol. We had a guy called Hermania who's leading our group who crawled out to open ground with an RPG. And I just thought, you know, that guy's crazy. No cover whatsoever, no open ground. He's not gonna survive this. My second brother got his camera ready. i got my camera ready. And Ken just said to me, are you rolling? I said, yeah, camera's rolling. He looked at her, main, he nodded, he just knelt up, filed an RPG. And this is against Russian BNPs. which is quite a low profile armored vehicle. And we watched this rocket go off, and he's doing straight over the top of the armored vehicle, missed from 200 meters. And the thing you found with the Muzidings, they weren't actually trained with the weapons, so they weren't using the sights. They're just pointing the weapon in that direction and firing it. And the first thing you notice, the Russian firepower went down. So you're instantly telling yourself, the looking, the looking. So I was hugging this embankment trying to keep a low profile. And then to me, a second mojuddin jumped from a doorway and fired the second RPG. Well, the back glass kicked up the dust and his rocket missed. And the Russians just instantly identified there. And three armoured vehicles manoeuvred, then put cross-fired. I can honestly say, the world was disintegrating. I could not hug the embankment more tightly, squeezing my cheeks in, feet 90 degree angles, and watching the dirt kick up around my ankles. And when the rounds go past you, you get that supersonic crack, and it feels like someone's slapping the hands right next to you. ear. So I found myself constantly blinking. I had twigs and branches falling on my head as the rounds were coming through. I just thought, this is bad. This is so, so very bad. I could hear one armoured vehicle maneuvering. And I just said to myself, look, the longer you stay, sooner or later, you're going to be looking at the turret, and calling out BBC. It's just not going to do anything. You know, this guy's probably really, really hacked off. you just attacked him. So I thought, I've got to go. But there's so much firepower coming in. I just thought, yeah, the moment I move, I'm going to catch one in the back. But I have no choice. Go. And I took one step and it was just, vroom! and I just went sailing through the air, complete some sort, landed on my back, big impact of dust picking up. And I lifted left to my feet, looked around, and there's people running in all different directions. And I just found this path and thought, go for it. And I ran for everything I could. I was dropping lenses, bits and pieces, and I just couldn't care. I was just trying to move as fast as I could. When I got to this narrow path, there was a young lad about 19 in front of me. And I just thought, mate, you're running too slow for me. And literally, as I got next to him, I sidestepped him by going into a ditch. And the moment I did that, he caught one in the back. I could hear the impact and the, all the air being exhaled out from his body. And he went down. I'm full credit. So I looked at my shoulder. The two moves behind me came up, scooped him up and dragged him off. And towards the end of this path, I did a 90 degree turn. And I just got to a stage, I said, you know, you're out of time. I cannot believe I've not caught one already. And I looked at the wall in front of me and I thought, go for it. And I didn't think I was gonna make it, but I took the wall's biggest leap, impacted the wall, but the mentor took me over the wall. And I landed on the other side, talking about breathing heavily. And then I made my way to a compound where we regroup? And as I sat and I looked around, I noticed one person was missing. My brother. And I thought, that's bad. That's very, very bad. So I went up to Romanian. I don't speak Pashtu, but use sign was indicating there's two of us. Where's the other one? And he called a guy over, asked a question, Pashtu, and this guy looked at me and shook his head. And I was like, man, I really want to see that. What am I going to explain to mum on this one? I said to him, look, need to go back. I need to see. And full credit to the guy. He actually called another guy over, and he was taking me back to where all the hell broke loose to find out what the, the score was. And as we got to that bend, out from this corner pop my brother, I said, where the hell have you been? He said, oh, I got cut off. So I was on the other side. There's so much rounds coming in, I couldn't get back. So I had to go through the cornfield. But then what I noticed when I was going through the cornfield, I was causing the corn to move. So the Russians were putting more fire into the cornfield. So he was actually crawling through. When we got back to the compound, we sat there, you know, my pubers were like saucers, huge. I looked at my brother and I said, you know, Ken, we nearly got wasted there. And he just looked at me and said, Andrew, you say that? but if you looked at World War II, the amount of rounds that got fired, the amount of people that got hit, the odds are in your favor. <laughs> and I looked at him I said, are you having a laugh? Ken, five minutes ago, I did not think the odds were in my favor. <laughs> you know? But yeah, like, Ken kind of got used to it, but for me, massive shock. And I was just like, you know, I wanted an adventure, but I wasn't expecting that, you know.
1: I bet. (laughs) And I just want to go back, because we didn't... um, I'm just going to go back to the um, Royal Marines Freefall team, because we didn't really um, cover that as much as I would have liked Andy. I I, I almost glossed over it then. Um, Because back in the day, it was a big thing in the Corps, wasn't it? I remember you used to have the, the bumper stickers, Royal Marines... You know, free, free fall Royal Marines and that kind of stuff,
0: and the old jump ring stickers, the zapping everywhere.
1: Yes, yes, that's right. And of course, I think it goes without saying there's obviously a a, um, a bit of rivalry there with the the Red Devils, who were the the Army's freefall display team. I'm, I'm guessing mostly mostly manned by the parachute regiment, was it?
0: The Red Devils was Paris. Yeah, the one exception was uh, Jackie Smith, who was uh, in the army, and they uh, allowed her to join the team. And she was an exceptional jumper; became a world champion.
1: Yeah, she was the only female in their in their team. Was was that right? Correct. The very first woman to join the military display team, the parachute team. Wow, what a great bit of history. And it. What what was the qualifications then to get into the Royal Marines team? What did you have to be interested in skydiving? Did you have to have done a para course or something, or or was
0: it just you put your name forward? Well, it initially started when they looked towards forming an official team. They picked people who were already qualified, <clears throat> and there wasn't that many. It was only like a handful of us. Now, I joined the team in like October seventy eight. I joined with a guy called Andy Grice. And the reason I managed to go straight into the team, there was only Andy and myself that were qualified in the Marines to go straight into the display team. And when I joined the team, I had two brothers on the display team, P and Ken. And the one thing I learned was canopy relative where was fairly new and no other display team was doing it. And what the, the older guys from me, what they decided was that was going to be their display doing the canopy stacking to make them different to the other teams. So you did your normal free 4 stuff, open parachutes, then linked up, and you're taking the canopy stacking into the arena, which again is additional risk. So when I joined the team, the first thing I had when I opened a parachute was my brother shouting at me, stay there. And I watched him come across, grabbed onto my parachute, and I said, what are you doing? When we landed, he said, Andrew, this is what makes the Royal Reef Parachute Display Team different to anyone else. We do canopy stacking. Get used to it. And at my stage of that time, I was still thinking the parachute was fragile, you yeah. But it took me from being a below average jumper to someone who is now recognized and respected amongst all the other skydivers, because we were the Royal Reef Parachute Display Team my first training camp was in Pope Valley in California. We got the British record, six stacked. And that kind of started this whole thing by going for records. And we look at the world record. It just came in a discussion when we talked about guys on the team. Because after Andy and myself, the Marines realized you had to start training people up. So when people applied for the team and had the interim and got selected, they spent a year at parishing school building up the jumps and after a year, they then joined the team. So we were sat there counting how many people of the years had been on the the display team. We realized, you know, if you count the ex-Marines as well, we've got enough people to go for the world record. So Rod Boswell organized the whole thing And full respect to him for organizing it all. We contacted Mick Upton, who had left the court 10 years previously, hadn't jumped since, we like, Mick, it's just like riding a bicycle. <laughs> when the guy in America flew back. So 1985 was our first attempt at the world record with enough people to go for it. Which at the time, the world record was held by the Americans at 23. What we achieved in '85 was we managed to equal the world record, but we did get the night world record of 22 at night. But what was frustrating with the big stacks, the bigger they get, the more snaky they get. So when you get like a turbulence sitting in the stack, it's like a whip. It ricochets up, comes back down, then the bottom guys just get exploded. So we kept getting like 21, 22. And if you think at the time, the biggest stacks in the world was 123, 122, 121. But the time we finished, we did 123, 122s, 1221s. And we just thought, you know, we were so, so close. We made the decision to come back in 86, and to try again. And the very first jump, we equaled the world record again. My issue was constantly the clouds. Every time we got low down, we got near a cloud. It created the turbulence. I can remember when we finally got it, I was totally unaware. Because when the stack gets bigger, it gets heavier. So when you're in the stack, it feels like your legs are being pulled out, your arms are being pulled out. And I actually took a couple of twists and lines to be able to hold on. Because so I just thought, you know, if I dropped 16 rings, they would not be impressed. <laughs> so I cheated and took a grip of the lines, took a twist. And when we broke off the stack, I had no strength for landing to flare the parachute my arms just spent. And I remember just bouncing on the ground, picking myself up, walking back, thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to have to do that again. Someone came out to me big smart and said, You've done it. I said, Done what? said, You just got the world record. I was like, Oh, thank goodness for that. Let's go for the team. Oh, brilliant.
1: Was it, um, was it sort of a feeling of kudos to be in the team? Did it make you a hit with the women or anything like that, or ju-
0: just amongst your fellow bootnecks? I think the biggest thing. For for us was to respect from other skydivers. You know, we built this reputation. We were, without doubt, at the time, the best display team in the, in the country. No one can compete with us. Uh, and even the Red Devils respected us for it. I think that meant that more to us, you know. As for the women, you know, <laughs> we're too busy skydiving. We're more interested in skydiving. What we did have was other members of the display team, also the Island Combat team and various other people, kept pinching our skydiving T-shirts. And in the evening, going around, as the free team. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant,
1: brilliant. And Andy, why did the... Remembering how legendary... I mean, you guys were like on Blue Peter, so this ch- children's TV programme, you were on the news, you were... All, almost like constantly in the in the media and stuff. It was a it was a big old um, uh, guy. I almost used the word propaganda tool then, but I mean it was a big uh, recruiting tool,
0: wasn't it? What, why did it, why did it end? Cutbacks. Pretty all it was. You know, the Marines had to find areas that had to cut back on money, and they chose the free team. You now, for us, we couldn't understand it. Just for the, the PR side, what we did. But the same thing happened with Royal Marines motorbike display team. When they were operating, they were best in the country and they got axed. And hence the Army White Helmets became like the only display team around on the motorbikes. Uh, it's a real shame personally. I think it was a mistake. But maybe that's because I'm too much orientated on the parachuting side, I don't know.
1: Yes, of course. It's funny when you think the the price of one of the modern day rockets that they fire in, in abundance in where, you know, whether it's Afghanistan or somewhere, you could probably fund that team for the
0: whole, the whole year. It's just one of those things. I mean, you mentioned earlier about San Sebastian in America. Yes. When I went on that trip, I was talking to the other hardcore Camp Reservoir guys, the Americans, and the heard I was one of the Marines on the big stake. They were in awe. Because that was 1986. That world record has never been beaten. And the Americans actually said to me, you know, that's one of the world records we've tried to get back, but we've just not been able to beat it. So it still carries a lot of respect. Yes, I'm just going
1: to, just one second while we're on the subject, Andy. I'm just going to see if I can get my Sebastian. Uh, Right, one second. I've got to try and do this without any volume. Um, let's have a look. I can't put the volume on because we'll get hit for copyright, but I'm just going to play our friends at home. This is me, folks, at Sebastian. This is in the, the preparation area where you go and you, 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 you either pack your shoot yourself, or if you don't know how, you, you pay somebody to do it. That's it, then you walk to the plane. You mind the propellers or the props? My friend Crow flew the plane and these guys just get absolutely mental at it. They get get so uh, precise, just getting up as quick as they can and then they just put the plane in almost into like a spin to get back down to the airfield, to pick up another bunch of skydivers as quick as they can. They know how to feather the propellers to to get the best out of the, the, you know, to really make the plane perform. This is us going up over the beautiful Florida sea. When I used to fly over the sea, you could see sharks swimming in in the water, sometimes near the, near, near the bathing beaches. There we are sorry there's no volume folks it's just we'll get hit for copyright because the tracks um they don't care what track they put on they don't care at the skydive sent if they're breaking copyright they just want to sell you a video so he's saying to me now one of the guys in the plane how are you feeling chris so i'm shitting myself like i always do <laughs> <laughs> It it was a lie. I I never did except that time when I had the hangover. This man here, my my little boy, always says, is that you, Dad? I say, no, that's Mr. Boring. He's gone for the traditional exit. Daddy comes out. Three, four... It does six somersaults. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This is the delta tracking that Andy and I were we're talking about. Everything cool in the USA is called delta, so delta tracking, delta force. Just going to backflip. Then you make this movement to signal to skydivers above you. You're going to pull your chute. My skydive is not pretty, by the way, folks. I'm, I'm. Uh, the harder you try and do something, the more out of control you go. There's, there's probably some sort of lesson there. But it's nice to do a standy uppy when you land. Yeah, that's it. It's just one of those things. I. Have you ever seen the film Point Break, Andy? I have. Yeah. I watched that back in the. Uh, mid 90s and um or late 90s and i just thought i've got to do this sport (laughs) especially he goes right put that on and the guy's never is it agent special agent utar or whatever his name is has never done a skydive in his life he's like right put that on and just you just pull that he's like okay um
0: these times are great
1: great. right we're going to go back to your amazing photographs um so that was Sebastian. Um, bum, 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 bum. What have we got here? So, few people are going to be familiar, familiar with this um, this road, Heartbreak Lane, or, or part of it. I think it's when you go. I think, I think this is referred to as the pig farm. Andy, is, that, is my memory serving me correct? Correct, yeah. Just yeah. this the hill. Wow. And when you look at this photo of you guys speed marching, um, it's it's going to be in the latter stages of training because you're all wearing your battle fatigues. So I'm guessing this is, a, is the nine mile pass out or maybe the six miler.
0: It's um, the nine mile
1: speed march. Nine miler. And it's... Just anybody that's ever been through Limpston will... This photo says it all, doesn't it?
0: It does. And I always found this big march is not too bad because I was a runner. But it swings and roundabouts like, short guys tend to find the running not too bad. Taller guys tend to find it a bit harder. But then you get the load carry, payback. I suffered big time on the load carries the bigger guys felt fine.
1: Yeah, I suffered on all of it, mate, to be honest. not not. I was a PT superior in the gym. I think I was the only guy there might have been two, possibly three, but I certainly was one of the only three that could climb the 30-foot um, ropes in full kit using just my arms and then do it again, right? And when you bear in mind some of the guys that just couldn't even climb it once using their legs, that was um, yeah. that was how strong my upper body strength was. Um, but the swimming, the, the the battle swimming test, and the speed marching and the low can was just torture, absolute torture for me. And the swimming was just, I didn't pass the swimming test until I think till we got in the King Squad.
0: Did you find a lot of these things, though? And it's a bit like some of the extreme stuff. It's all a mental game. you know, you just got to win the mental game. So like things like Speed March, they used to say to myself, it can't last forever. At some point, the training team's going to say, stop. So just keep going. So you just play the mental game.
1: Yeah, I played the mental game. It's probably why oh, it's so painful. I should have just dropped out, and gone home. <laughs> I mean, we. I think anyone that's got the green lid has. Um, we've all know to play the mental game, don't we? You just hang in there, but um, but the pain, the pain of hanging in there was it's just extreme. Um, I'm not being a good recruiter here, am I? <laughs> but.
0: But plenty of people out there will want the challenge. Yes. The challenge is yourself. And that's what they need to find out some answers. You run along, don't you don't you, Andy? And you think, do you know
1: what? If I've got the energy to collapse now on the on the verge, I've got the energy to put one more foot in front of the other, and that's that's just like the philosophy, isn't it? It just just you just praying for them to say, Right, true, hope, or break into what's it break into quick t- not quick time i can't even remember the terminology now it's been so long but you know you break into a march and then it's stop right fellas breathe in through the nose out through the mouth and by this time you all collapsed in the field going yes it's over it's and nobody, over the
0: finishing line is the finishing line
1: yes and it's not always the finishing line is it no, sometimes it's you, you think the four tonner truck is around the next corner and, and it's not. And, and then sometimes it is, which was a, yeah. is kind of the ante. Um, here, mate, we've got your, um, your record book, your log book. And it says here, first British solid object. Jump four went off. Um, th- Something's. Sp- looks like three squares or something from 900 feet. Um, round, a round canopy, which is interesting. Yeah, that was me. An experience I will never forget. How about that?
0: Does so so that tell the story behind that? Yeah, what's the story behind that one? Well, 1980, the skydiving had an AGM. And in those days, people used to bring the latest films out so you could see the latest skydiving. And I just went to the cinema section with my pint, you know, just wanted the rest of my legs. Well, this film just finished, and the guy said, Oh, can I put my film on? Like, yeah, yeah, put your film on. And the first thing he noticed was backpackers hiking down the road, and the camera kept panning to this cliff. And I was like, What's he doing? This is a Skyline convention, and he's put a climbing film on. And half the audience got up and started to leave the room. And the next thing you saw was these guys huddled around a bonfire, and it just went click, and everyone's in skydiving gear. And you're like, why are they in skydiving gear? And the next shot you saw was them stood close to the edge, and one guy looks at the camera, turns around, and starts running towards the edge, and everyone's leaning forward going, No. And next you know, these guys went off. And for the whole night it's just the buzz. Did you see those skylights jumping off the cliff? And I went back on the road with the display team. And then the season, a friend of mine, Ian Grant, said to me, Andy, what are you doing on Leaf? I said, You know, Ian, that film I saw at the AGM, I hate heights. Now, from an aircraft, an altitude was so high, you don't relate the height. But the idea of actually standing on the cliff, I would be able to relate to that. And I said, I need to know can I do it? So I'm off to America to go jump this cliff. And he just said to me, you know, I'm not doing anything. I'll come with you. Yeah, you. So we flew to America, went to Paris Valley. I spoke to skydivers there to find out how do you go about jumping out Cabotan? So you need to get a permit. What well, the Rangers used to do was issue you three permits. Well, most guys would do the one jump. and be happy with that. So I found two guys to each had a permit for the same day. Gave it to us, and I found the rangers up to say, Look, these guys aren't jumping, they're giving us their permits. Do you mind if we take their, pl- their place? They said, Yeah, that's not, not a problem. So we both went down to our cabotan, jumped it, and it just blew me away. I was so scared. I can remember landing in the meadow, and another skydiver, American guy who jumped after me landed. He walked up to me and said, You know, Andy, that was the most terrifying piece of cake. I just look at him in shock going, What do you mean? He's not there. I was terrified. And the moment I jumped, it was just another skydive. I thought, You know something? You're right. Well, back in the UK, I met a guy called Frank Dunblin at Netheravan, and he had jumped out of Capitan. So it's quite common for us to be drinking in an evening, come together, and start talking about Capitan again. And then one day Frank came up to me. He said, Andy, I've got this letter from a guy called Carol Bonish. They've started this thing called Bass. I said, Bass. So what's that? He said, Well, to, to qualify for base, you need to jump a building, an antenna, span, that could be like a bridge or a cable car, and earth, a cliff. And that's where you get your base number. Say how high is the buildings? Can't be that high. And thought nothing more of it. Then my older brother came back from the States. And I said, oh, I had to go on the States, Pete. Job really good. Got 35 jumps out on an airplane. And I looked at him and said, why would you say that? He said, say what? I said, you said 35 jumps on an airplane. You wouldn't say that. You would say, I did 35 jumps. But you didn't. You specifically said out an airplane. What have you done? He said I jumped on the tenner, an aerial. He said, how high was it? He said, 11 feet. 11 feet. You're mad. At least our cab of town was 3,000 foot. And then a couple of weeks later, we're drinking I mean, a cup of tea, sat by the bench. I said, You know, Pete, this uh, aerial, a ton of thing you jumped in America, we don't have them in the UK, do we? And he said, Wait here. Went to his car, came back. My brother's a pilot. Laid out the pilot's map, and all these areas are listed with the heights. <laughs> and I said, Can I borrow that map? Of the next few months, I was just driving around checking all these antennas. And I can always remember I was in Suffolk, came over this little hill with my Sonny Walkman playing, uh, Boston, More Than a Feeling. And I was on my motorbike and I just saw this antenna, this area and I went, oh my word. And I instantly just got the shapes. And I parked up the bike, walked across the road Walked around the compound, looking at this area, and I went, this is the one. that my heart was thumping, my mouth just simply went dry. Got back a motorbike. A month later, went back for another skydiver. We climbed over the fence, got onto the area, we started climbing it. Got to 100 feet there's a big sign there. Danger to life. <laughs> I paused. And he said, uh, what do you reckon? I said, oh, I think it's rubbish. It's just to scare people. He said, oh. We're going to carry on. It's like, no, you won't be telling the truth. <laughs> we need to get back down. We need to research this. So we left. And then um, Frank Donovan came up to me one day and said, I hear you found an antenna. I said, yeah. He said, can I jump it? I said, look, mate, this is the deal. I need to be the first one to jump it because I found it. He said, oh, no, that's not a problem. I said, the issue I've got at the moment is... I'm trying to do research, and it's the days you had no internet going to the library. I said, I can't find any information on the, the aerials. And a week later, Frank came up to me and said, Andy, I've got a guy, he knows everything about aerials. So, oh, that's great, you know. And they called um, Mike McCarthy over. We just jumped in the car, raced down to Mendelssohn and Suffolk, got out of the car, looked at this aerial. Mike McCarthy was still there <laughs> looking at this aerial. And I walked out and said, well, Mike, what do you reckon? Is that sign true or false? And Mike just looked at me and said, how would I know? I work in the signals regiment. We work fifteen 54 arrows, not a 1,000 feet. And I looked at Frank and went, you suckered me to give this location away. And we decided to come back, the weather was awful, to come back the following Friday. Well, on the Monday, I sold my square parachute. So all I had left was my reserve. I kept thinking, do I trust these guys to wait until Friday? I was like, no. So I decided, right, I'll jump my round reserve. So I transferred the reserve into the main compartment leaving the line stood in the reserve train and put a policy on it. I went back. And for two days I spent living in the field next to this area just waiting for the weather and it just rained, it was windy. And after two days, I was like, this is like a Friday morning. I was like, I'm hungry. I haven't eaten. I feel rough. Let's go to a Twitch, get B&B, get some food, get showered, freshen up. And I'll meet the guys that night. And I had a Chinese takeaway, had a shower, laid in bed. I fell asleep. And I woke up and it was pitch black, no traffic. And I thought, like, oh, no. And I didn't have the motorbike at the time, but I was actually on public transport. So I ran out on the road for my bag and the lorry came along and I hitched the lift and I couldn't believe he was just stopped and gave me a lift I said oh I can't believe it. the only vehicle he's giving me a lift. We got to the aerial I said oh this would do mate. and he's like look here I'm going there's nothing here. I said oh I live in a farm over there. He said okay then and I jumped out I crossed the road to the labour and there's two vehicles there and I went is that the guys and I walked out and there's two guys just looked at me we were like evil looking faces, and I was like, oh no, don't tell gonna get mugged. Obviously the guys haven't turned up. So I just continued around, got to the field, unpacked my gear, put it on, climbed over the fence and started climbing the aerial. And I got halfway, I like—I hate heights. So climbing that ladder was so scary. But every 124 there was a rest platform, I would get off and shake my arms down. And I got to around four, 500 feet, and as I was climbing, To my shock, this parachute has suddenly opened next to me. I thought, what the heck? And I watched this parachute fly down. The guys in the vehicles had gone out. I thought, oh, that's the DZ party. The next thing I know, another parachute opened. I thought, who the heck's that? I'm only expecting Frank. There's two. And then the other shock I heard, the third parachute. There's three parachutes. And I watched the guys just jump the cars and they roared off. And I was totally and utterly gutted. But Mike McCarthy was the first one to actually jump off. So he did the first UK base jump.
1: Yeah, we I should um, to... we should say hello to Mike, because um, Mike's been on the podcast. Lunatic threw himself off the Empire State Building. Oh, um, he's quite a character. Yes. Yes, he is. <laughs> and uh, I get the full uncensored version because we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> Not, but a bit more than we can put out on the podcast but um yes incredible man incredible man in fact I did a podcast with him yesterday actually so andy just one second and we're back yes um looking at a photo here andy um <laughs> i try and describe it 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 looks like two people have jumped out of a Cessna 172 and then changed their mind. <laughs> um Can you hear me okay? I can hear you okay. something. Yeah, I just in. yeah there, uh, there's two guys clinging onto a Cessna.
0: Ah yes, yes, the the stunt. Yeah. Uh, one's acting as the the student uh, and it's recreating an incident in the um, late 1960s. Well, I was actually from uh, a Dragon repeat, but we just don't have those f- jump fly nowadays. And the student left the aircraft and got hung up. And the jump master went down the line, grabbed the string reserve, cut himself free, deployed the string reserve, and he got the George medal.
1: Oh, one second, mate. One sec. Yes. Um, sorry, Andy, for friends at home, I had to in- interrupt Andy because we got a technical glitch. Um. The so sorry, what was the 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 re can you just refresh your memory, Andy? What was the reconstruction
0: on the um the oh for the the stunt? Yeah, it was recreating an incident in the 19 late 1960s where soon left the aircraft and the static line got snagged and he was hung up outside the aeroplane. The Joe master asked the pilot to keep flying, retaining the, the altitude. He decided to climb down the static line, grab the other students' reserve cut the static line. As he fell free, he deployed the student reserve and got a George medal.
1: Wow.
0: Now, we were recreating this for a documentary called Dead Man's Tales, which covers a few stories. So, um, so I went down on the static line. I had to climb down the static line to get to him. And just for film purposes, when we release, we are going to do a free fall side just to sort of entertain the public watching the the documentary. But we had to do that five times. Oh, you did the stunt five times? Just to maximize the footage. The only thing I did different was, the guy who did it for real, had a strop that he fed around the static line. So had he slipped, he would still end up where the student was. But I looked at this and thought, if I'm coming down with a strop, and my parachute accidentally deploys, I'm gonna pull the whole aircraft out of the sky. And I opted not to do it. So, even if it did deploy, I would get ripped off, but not not the aircraft. So, just start on the cautious side. But we did that five times.
1: Yeah, when I skydive, and it's probably this, I'm sure you've had the same experience. The pilot normally wears a, a, a very thin parachute just in case anybody brings the plane down accidentally. Yeah.
0: I mean, that stunt went well. It was the stunt afterwards that. Uh, was very very interesting
1: do you want to talk about that or should we go back to the logbook? don't mind to oh, you okay all right if you tell us this Dit, then we'll go back to the the, okay. the log, logbook one
0: so having got the uh, the aircraft footage the next one um, footage wanted leo wanted some free fall footage with me grasping for the reserve handle so sammy went out in the aircraft and we thought, you know, there's not much to this, so we only go at 7,000 feet. So we left the aircraft with me holding to him, and he's actually on his back. But to my surprise, he dropped his arms. So he was doing that delta track on his back with me on the side. And what had happened, it just caused a spin. So we just ended up spinning away. The g-force was such, I couldn't release one hand to reach for the reserve handle. And I looked at him out of me, he's nice and look, this has gone pear shaped. Well, break off, i let him go. He's going to realize we're at break off height and just deploy his parachute. So I let him go. I turned in a half hearted track so I'm expecting his parachute to, to deploy. Looked over my shoulder, and to my surprise, he was still on his back, free falling. And I quickly spun myself back around to look at him, thinking, what's he doing? And he suddenly hit me. He's lost his altitude awareness. And I just thought, instantly just thought, I'm going to get to him. I started to dive towards him. And it's interesting the fact the altimeter's on my hand, but I'm in the delta track going down to him. I haven't got the time to check on the height, but mentally I'm reading off the height. Two and a half thousand feet, two thousand feet, fifteen hundred feet. I'm really getting close. And I just got to a stage where thousand feet but I was so close. I can remember thinking, "This is shit or bust." And I came over the top of him, skidded, and he looked at me with the biggest smile. And yeah, and I was like, "Pull it, pull it!" And we instantly just knew by my expression. Pulled reserve. I spun around, threw my pilot ship, went far out of the ripcord because recreating the '60s, hit this ripcord, looked down, and I thought, "I'm in the trees, you know. I just thought, it just seems unfair. That's a bummer. And to my surprise, the parachute opened and we were a second and a half away from impact. And uh, Leo's wife was filming for the ground and all she could hear me was screaming, pull it. She turned away from the camera and burst into tears because she just thought, that's it, we're both in. Um, And afterwards I thought about it. We had just got back from America doing training jumps from 13,000 feet and size mental clock was 13,000 not 7,000 you know ah. it was a massive shock you know and we didn't have safety devices in those days the automatic activation devices you know now to size credit every year around christmas we tend to meet up with a few other friends and he always buys me a point say so. thank you very much you know my two kids exist because of you <laughs> it's so you incredible get free partner, you
1: know. just incredible I'll um, just make a note of that Andy and you were going to tell us um, I just wanted to ask you one question uh, before we go any further and that is I've noticed the call sign on this plane get the picture back for our friends at home the call sign is g r n r n r n rm
0: is that the uh, the navy's plane the aircraft belongs to the royal navy royal marine sport parachute association that was based at dunkswell and oh. at the time i was the chief instructor
1: i didn't know you could choose the is that this i'm try- trying to remember back to when i learned to fly was your your call sign is your what's written on the side of the plane is it not
0: yes it is yeah g signifies a uk aircraft british aircraft and American. In
1: America, yeah. And I didn't know yet that you could choose your own call sign.
0: How did how did you manage to wangle that? Surprisingly, it's not that expensive. I think we paid about 60 pounds and could change the registration. When I purchased my own aircraft, I looked towards doing the same thing. And I was gonna have Golf Uniform Echo Sierra Tango. Guest <laughs> But it turns out helicopters got it, so I couldn't have it.
1: Oh, that's not fair. And what were you going to tell us about the
0: police when you did the aerial jump? Oh, the funny story of the aerial, where right? the other three guys had jumped, jumped to the cars and they shot off, leaving me on this aerial. I got to the end of the footmark and I noticed the structure the aerial changing. And I thought, you know, that's the transmitter. I'm not going to go any high in case I get cooked. I'm going to leave from here. And all of a sudden I had this police siren I thought, oh, what? And I noticed on my left, it was an industrial area. And some of those people had seen the other people jump. But those had also seen me climb. And one guy used to run outside, look up, then go back inside the building. When I got to the 800-foot mark, this guy came out, ran back in, about 40 people came out. And then when I heard the police sign, I thought, oh, you snitches, you've phoned the police. So I thought, what am I going to do? And I sat there and I thought, I'll tell you what, I let the person climb the ladder, and I will jump off. And to to surprise surprised, the police didn't get out of the car. They drove off into the industrial area. And I thought, I'll tell you what, the winds are going in that direction. Let's, let's think about this. I jump off. They've never seen anything like it. They're totally amazed. I'm drifting away. I land. Then they start thinking, we need to get to. Meanwhile, I'm running. Time to go now. So I got ready, climbed out the structure, holding to the parachute. Looked across, saw this police car parked up, and the guy ran from the crowd. Spoke to this policeman and got out of the car. The next thing I heard was his voice screaming, Oi, get down! I thought, I'll tell you what, since he's called it, I'll do it. And since I've got an audience, play to it. So I gave him a big wave and I leapt off, threw the parachute out, my round reserve parachute opened. And to this day, it's still the only round reserve parachute base jump. And I landed and I actually did manage to get away. When I went back to get my power bag, it was missing. So I thought, okay, the police have got the power bag. Well, wet sleeping bag. Don't worry about it. Three hours later, my brother phones me on the pay phone. And he said, Andrew, I've heard what you've done. Congratulations. I P, how did you hear? I know the jungle drums are good, but that's ridiculous. Bearing my no mobile phones in those days. He said, What did you leave behind? I said, uh, wet sleeping bags. I was living in the field for two days. He said, What else? I said, I don't know. It's let's put it this way armed police have surrounded the parents' house. I said, What? I said, That's way of the job." He said, What did you leave in the power bag? I said, my brain's locked. Gone. He said, You left your Afghanistan souvenirs. That trip I did with my brother Ken. On my way to the Mars, I stopped in London to show my friend parts of anti-personal mines, part of our rockets, all these bits and pieces, everything spent. He said, Yep. The whole of Suffolk police force have turned out. They think you're terrorists and some sort of stunt. I suggested give them a call. And I was like, Oh, this is just blown up a portion. And I phoned up my parents' police station. They said, Oh mate, we're not interested. The Suffolk police, you need to phone them. I was like, oh, have you got their number? And they gave it to me. And I found them out and I said, um, I believe you're looking for me, it's Mr. Guest. so oh, yes, oh Mr. Guest, yes, we are looking for you. Are you gonna come back for your stuff? I said, what a strange question. I said, well, I might as well come back. So well, when would you like to come back? And I was like, well, I was hoping to get jumping this weekend. Can I go Monday? Fully expecting to get verbal abuse and a police car to be on its way to pick me up the guy just said, okay, we'll see you Monday. What time? I said, I'm flexible. She said, so shall we say 10 o'clock? I said, 10 o'clock's fine. He put the phone down I was like, what just went on in there? That was far too friendly. And on the Monday, my father drove me there. We parked outside there's a small police station in the village called I. And he parked up the car and I said, All right, you know, I'll go <laughs> have a chat. I went in the police station, there's the desk sergeant there. And he said, oh, Good morning, sir. Can I help you? And I said, Good morning. I believe you expect me, Mr. Guest. And he just smiled and went, Oh, Mr. Guest, yes, we are expecting you through that door. I went through this door and there's a table two chairs and he came in the other door. He said, Mr. Guest, would you like a tea? I just looked and said, Yeah, tea would be nice. He said, uh, Who's that in the car? I said, That's my father. He said, Would he like a tea? It's like, no, he's a coffee drinker. He said, i get him a coffee and off he went. I was thinking, what is going on? And all of a sudden, a policeman arrived in the doorway with his arms folded, looked at me, smiled, nodded and walked in and there was just endless policemen, one after the other, all doing the same, pausing in the doorway and walking in. And eventually I had policemen, all four walls, looking down at me and I was thinking, this is very intimidating. This is when the mattress comes out and they're filming in. And the desk sergeant came back, plate biscuits, Covered tea, leaned back in his chair and said, well, Mr. Guest, tell us all about it. It must have been very exciting. And I was like looking and going, well, yeah, it was very exciting. But look, understand one thing. I am actually a very experienced skydiver. And all I was trying to do was celebrate my 1,000th jump in a different manner. It was actually 1,005, but I thought it just sounded good. And when we finished, he just said, um, what was that in the bag? I said, i just do the trip to Afghanistan filming the war, the footage to TV networks. Said, Mr. Guest, you do like to lead an exciting life. Well, that said, that's your stuff. You're free to go. I said, oh, before we go, can uh, I just ask one thing? He what's that? I said, would you sign my love book? And he signed it. And then I left a, a book for the police station, apologized to all the policemen to say, look, I'm fully aware that you guys got recalled back. The whole thing got blown out of proportion. Being next minute, I can understand how this went down. And I can only say I'm really sorry about that. Had I remembered what I had in the bag, I'll called you sooner. Just and the great thing is, when I got back home, I went up to my mother who's in the kitchen and said, Mum, really sorry about the armed police surrounding the house. And she just looked at me and said, oh, don't worry about it, son. These things happen. I said, no, Mum, these things don't happen. Not armed police. Uh, uh,
1: uh. Yes, yeah, sounds like you, you're, you've got the... Um,
0: you're, your parents are saints. Well, my father was... Uh, an ex uh, Royal Marine as well, and he served in the Malayan Police Force, jungle Lair. Got you. So it was very good. They never tried to restrict all three sons, all three skydivers, all three sons in the Royal Marines. Andy, we're going to come on
1: and look at this roughy toffy picture. Um, it's you. It looks like you're holding a Kalashnikov or some similar weapon, and you're in the desert with your um, chest webbing on looking very um i was gonna say rambo-like but you haven't taken your top off yet but i guess you have security Afghanistan. yeah was it, it is this private security work private security work
0: how did you get into that i basically received a phone call i was in between jobs having just sold a skydiving school and uh, my brother ken was working out there doing armed security the same brother i went to afghanistan with and he said how do you fancy working out here and the salary was such i couldn't really turn it down so i said yep yeah i'll do it then the company phoned me up um gave me the job and said right two weeks flight tickets you're on your way and ken actually met me in Kabul airport we looked at each other, burst in a big smile and said, who would have thought it, brother? 28 years later, we're back again. You, you're
1: you, a bit mental, you're, you're this brother thing you've got going on, aren't you?
0: Well, each brother's got their own adventures. Evan Ken was a freelance cameraman in war zones, not only in Afghanistan. He did Lebanon at its peak, Cambodia, you know, a whole range of stuff.
1: Wow. And what company did you work for were you working for it's one of these sort of reputable companies or how how does that work
0: it was a completely respectable security company there's a number of them um all specializing and they're just basically picking guys who've got a skill factor from their military experience
1: yeah got you um and what year was this
0: andy I went out there in 2008, the um, first project I was given was this project manager was implementing armed security on American bases, so I had Jalalabad airfield and I had uh, Bob Gosh on the Pakistan border, so I had 375 Afghans with me overseeing them. Wow,
1: and um, were there any kind of mishaps or adventurous bits, I'm, well, I'm betting
0: there was, well, the first time I went to Bob Goster, I had my team and vehicles, and we got behind an American patrol, and I was like, we're not gonna go past that American patrol, just in case they're a bit trigger happy. And because they parked out, I parked up, and I was like, how long are they gonna be? So I thought, right, okay, look, guys, stay in the vehicle, because I didn't want the Afghans to get out of the vehicle with weapons, in case they mistook us for the Mujahideen, or the, the Taliban. So I climbed out of the vehicle and I took my body arm off because I didn't want it to be thought as a suicide vest. Walked about 60 paces forward and I just started stripping. Just went naked. Just showed to I've got nothing in the front, nothing behind me and shouted in my best English accent, excuse me, would you mind awfully if I could go past you in the vehicle? The guy shouted back, yes, stay where you are. Ah, blimmin' And uh, when I eventually got to Bob Goster, I actually met the guy who said that. He said, oh, I was just messing with him. <laughs> but Bob Goster was amazing in a sense. The perimeter fence was only chest height. And I was like, I looked to the side, and there's a one strand of bad wire. I said, sir, what's happening here? Oh, it's a major cock up. I said, What was the cock up? He said, We've got the plans for the base, 300. So we built it at 300 meters. Then we discovered you bricks were feet, <laughs> <laughs> so they ran out of building materials. Oh, got you. Yeah. And,
1: um, Andy, i looking at your weapon here. Is that a Kalashnikov, or am I is it some version of it? It's an AK 47, AK 47, yeah. And, um, they all they're all looking like quite well used. Where, how, how does a security company? operating in afghanistan get get such weapons well in those
0: days black market you can actually purchase them God. initially in the early days you could pick one up for fifty dollars and towards the end they were costing something like six hundred dollars each is and that... my ak-47 was manufactured in 1958 wow is that an optical sight you've got on it yeah and I've actually put a hand grip at the front as well. I modified it.
1: Yeah, I can see that. Um. It looks fancy, but it's just an AK
0: 47. Yeah, and but they're very reliable, aren't they? That's the beauty of the AKs. I mean, people bury their weapons, digging them out 30 years later, and they're still working. Yeah, I've got you. Blimey. And
1: um just flicking forward through the photos. This is just an iconic picture here. This is the stuff of like um you know, National Geographic or something. It's you leant back against the sandbags with your weapon leaning up against them. Oh yeah. And you really I think you've you've gone rogue. You've gone you've gone native.
0: Well, I ended up working um, 14 straight months without any leave, seven days a week. Uh, and the whole idea, the way our thought process was working low profile, because on that project I was looking after the American clients. So I had a security team. There was four of us looking after him. And the whole idea was to blend in. So I just wore local clothes, grew the beard, Hoping that if we did get ambushed. It just might buy me three seconds. Someone's from this side. Is he Afghan or not?
1: Yeah, I've got you. I'm, I'm, my money would be that you are. I think your parents are hiding something from you, Royal. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what does a security operative carry? on him, how how many magazines would
0: would you guys be carrying? Well, I was fully aware there was an incident where a security team got caught in an ambush and they actually ran out of ammunition, were killed. So my whole thing was to ensure we didn't run out of ammo. So I carried something like eight magazines. I also had another bag with more magazines in.
1: Wow. My team carried the
0: same, so we had the firepower.
1: Where does the ammunition come from? Who supplies that to the, to the security um, operations?
0: Well, again, that's that's purchased on the black market. Um, I was asked by another uh, expat, you so, know, can you come with me tonight? This is uh, in Jalalabad, and he was my sort of country manager. And I said, yeah, sure. And we got into the vehicle and we drove through to the other barn. we started to drive in the countryside. And there's only the two of us. And I was like, where are we going? He said, oh, we're going to meet a guy and buy some ammo. I said, let me get this right. You're meeting a guy who knows you're carrying cash to buy ammo. That's not smart. And he's picked the location. I said, that's, that's just not smart. We we drove along in, in pitch blackness, parked up this lay-by with high ground to my left, and I was just waiting for the muzzle flashes. You know, and eventually there's two guys appeared from the darkness with a box of ammo, 7.62, brand spanking new. Where did it come from? The Americans gave it to the Afghan army, who were then proceeding to sell in the black market. You yeah. know, and when yeah, we got back, I just said to this guy. Don't ever, ever do that to me again. You know, letting people know you're carrying cash and letting them choose the ground just didn't make sense.
1: No, that's not good drills, is it? No, it's not. Did you um, did you have anyone killed then while you were the
0: doing this work? I didn't have anyone um, killed. I did have incidents. Um, we were in an Afghan army training camp. And in the corner was a little American base. And my American client said to me, Andy, I don't need your security guys to follow me around on camp. We're actually on the camp. I said, I hear what you say, Steve, but here's the thing. It's an Afghan training camp. In the last two weeks, I've noticed the Afghan officers have started carrying sidearms. I'm asking myself, why do they feel they need to carry a sidearm? And we don't know where the, where the recruits are coming from. So I said, look, I have a duty of care to you, your family and friends that i take every precaution. So my security team will be with you. They won't be on your shoulder. They'll step back so you can do your work. And he was involved with construction and he was overseeing the construction of barracks. And then uh, one particular day, I was driving around the corner and I could see all these Afghan army guys rushing out of their accommodation. I was like, what's going on there? And I looked towards my right and I couldn't see uh, anything. So I said to my uh, driver, who's in said, what's going on? He said, they're watching the football, Mr. Andy. I said, football? I said, no one's playing football. And he just looked and me. they're anticipating football? I said, don't give me this anticipating football. Pull the vehicle over. He pulled over I said, look, I said, there's a guy running back from the opposite side. Go ask him what's going on. And he went across, came back and said, uh, Mr. Andy, that's very, very bad. I said, what? He said, the tower guard's just opened up. He shot some Americans. I said, right, in the vehicle, we're gonna find a client. I picked the client up. I said, look, there's been an incident. I know Americans have been shot. We're going back into the compound, we're locking down. And it transpired that four Americans were out doing a training run who were actually doctors. And two of them got uh, killed. One was an American female. One got wounded. And the fourth guy managed to hide behind the tank. But the Americans were in the lockdown. They actually left the guy out there. And eventually, a couple of hours later, they managed to get him back. And then my client came out to me and said, you know, Andy, whatever you say now, it will go, I won't question it. Um, you just don't know. Who, who shot them, Andy? Did I miss that? It was the Afghan Army Guard. Oh. Apparently, the story behind it his parents' village got bombed by the Americans, and his parents were killed. And after he shot the Americans, he committed suicide.
1: Yeah, well, you yes. I think um. Yeah, I think I, I think this, these conflicts have created a lot of um. Upset people, haven't they? It's uh, been absolutely devastating. What I mean, there are no winners. That's the trouble. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, the the sociopaths that hoover up all the money. Are, are, I wouldn't say they're winning because they're a bunch of losers, but terribly tragic. Did you ever hear of um, my friend? His name was Andy Bradshaw.
0: Can't say I did.
1: No, he was um, when the private security thing first kicked off in Iraq. Uh, he took a contract with a. A company called olive olive security yeah them. No, no. yeah and he um he they basically one of his patrols got ambushed and um him and a color sergeant a guy called chris i think his name was um might have been chris mcdonald um yeah they both got shot shot dead some um, yeah i remember the incident yeah pretty extreme to be i was watching a documentary on the the black and all these kind of almost roguish like companies that have cropped up and uh next thing you know i was looking at at <laughs> one of my best mates dead bodies lying in the dirt in 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 mosul and, and his wife um who was a a, sure. new, a news anchor woman just doing a voiceover saying you know andy was everything to me i'm like that's my mate. Um, but yeah, yeah. The, the, is there a little bit of, you know, live by the sword, die by the sword when
0: when we do this sort of work? Well, in my view, it a fact, you know, I was paid to do a job and that's to protect the client. And so that, that will be me committed. How do we go to a firefight? I really to my team we do not surrender because they don't take prisoners. So what's the point of surrendering? You know, we get into firefight, we fight. Yeah. Well, I also told my Afghans, you know, we have a duty of care to our client to protect him. But At the same time, I have a duty of care to you guys, because you guys got family. And I was always surprised one day when one of the Afghans came up to me and said, you know, Miss Andy, you're one of the only people that we respect. And I sort of smiled and said, why is that then? He because you give respect. When you give respect, you give respect back. No one else gives us respect. And some of the ways people spoke to them, I can never understand. No. At the end of the day, you're in a firefight, You're gonna depend on the guys. So you gotta treat them right. <clears throat> and I learned lessons from my brother, Ken. When he got to the main gate, the Afghans were, oh, Mr. Ken, Mr. Ken. There was all this man hugging. I was like, man hugging? Oh, I'm not into man hugging. The next time I got to the gate, I saw the way they looked at the other guys. I was like, apparently I'm into man-hugging now. <laughs> and my older brother worked in Iraq, and he emphasised the whole thing about low profile. See what the, the locals have got, buy what the locals have got. You know. Uh, and he worked for me. I mean, there were incidents for other teams being hit, especially the Americans, because they would all be body armored arm vehicles, dark windows. I wonder why they got hit. You know? yeah. And I did have one stage... A Kiwi uh, complained to my manager that my team weren't wearing helmets. So I was told, wear helmets. And I said, hang on, here's the photograph. The only other people wearing helmets, driving vehicles, it's the American Army. So you're asking us to get hit by accident because they might think we're American Army. It makes no sense. He said, I'll take your point. Don't wear helmets. So Lois is applying common sense.
1: Yes, of course. Andy, what I'm going to do... I'm just gonna come back and we'll finish off with your the couple of Limston pictures that we didn't um that we didn't uh discuss. And then I think we'll need to do a, another podcast on another day to get part to get part two in. Um so I'm looking now at oh. your looking now at your pass out picture. Um there's a guy, he looks like he's dressed like a cr- a, a crow. Exeter man yeah or a beef eater or something and yeah. is that is that you that he's looking at in that picture and that picture on the furthest one to the right ah okay i thought i thought that might have been you and um, did you have any views on the slr versus the sa80 well my experience with the sa80 was when
0: it first came out and there's just all sorts of issues. And like the magazine release was on the inside. So when you held your weapon, you accidentally released your magazine. And parts of it would have been actually breaking all the time. You know? But I also you know, my older brother was part of the team that did the trials. And they actually condemned it. But they got overruled. And it's like, no, that's what we're manufacturing. That's what you're going to have. You know. And the one through with SOR, you hit someone, they went down hit by
1: a double decker bus mm. yes and that that was um speaking to dave radband who was former sfsg and i think he was saying in afghanistan that the especially when you're fighting an enemy that could be really hyped up on drugs you could hit them with 5.56 and they'll just keep keep coming at you so the fsg S F S G fssg have this like um short version of a 7.62 i, I can't i'm not f- familiar with the name of the web anybody listening if you can put it below or maybe andy knows but it's sort of a shorter a shorter rifle but it's 7.62 and it's obviously good for that kind of war fighting
0: and the one thing the short is designed for vehicles Ah, of you course. You weapon like right he's here.
1: Yeah, that's... That's... And that's
0: why I had a folding belt on my AK-47.
1: Ah, of course. Yeah, the SA-80 was besieged with problems when it came out. I was one of the first troops in training to be issued it. Um, they sorted out a few of the snags then. Um, but it did make you wonder... Do you think they commissioned the S80 just so it could, because it was made by Enfield, wasn't it, originally? It was, yeah. Do you think that was just to, to give this massive contract to a British a British maker, so the money kind of stayed in the country?
0: Well, it can only be a personal opinion, but my gut feeling, that's what was behind it.
1: Yeah, because the logical move would have been to get the, the armour light, wouldn't it, the... Was it AR-16 that that the Americans have used very successfully? And cheaper. And cheaper, yeah. Yes. I remember the first time, well, I remember in Norway, they had a problem with the weapons freezing as well, didn't they? I never did Norway, but
0: I used to miss it.
1: Oh. I was I got rear party in Plymouth were cut off by the snow. I almost said "lucky you" then, because at the time I would have gone "lucky you," but now looking back, what a amazing experience! But I couldn't, um, I couldn't get my head around it at first. When you when you get your tent sheet up, or tents as we later had, you all stick your weapon outside in the snow in a kind of uh, like a tripod thingy. <laughs> and I'm like, "What? We just leave them outside?" <laughs> it's like, "Yep." <laughs> kind of makes sense because obviously if if you warm your weapon up inside the tent it's going to start rusting um but i always thought that's funny what if the enemy just come through in the night and take everyone <laughs> steal everyone's I
0: mean, weapon both my, th- brothers, both my brothers did the arctic warfare um and they've got fond memories of it and they thought I, I missed not doing it yeah i just had this thing that it's cold oh
1: it's just wonderful and it's great to go back i've lived in norway on a, on and off for a few years and in sweden and it's great to go back and put skis on and be be a british person or an englishman that's actually quite good at skiing because you know it's not it's not not a sport we're known for in this country no and um yes the pass out parade isn't it It, it's i feel sorry for the guys now they're having to do it over bloody skype or something right they're doing it over the internet because of all this um, nonsense that's going on. So, I mean, the, you look forward, don't you? 30, 32 weeks of training. It's now 36 weeks. You look forward to seeing your, your family and your friends at the end of it.
0: My heart goes out to them. As you say, you know, it's the climax of all your training. Now, that special moment is what you show your family. Yeah. Um, and these guys are missing out all that hard work and just not getting that, that reward. In my own King Squad was too late. We actually finished the training, got given our green berries. We went off firefighting. And then when the firefighting was finished, then we went back to Limstone, tied up with the troop behind us, and did the double King Squad.
1: Oh, wow. We almost had a double King Squad anyway because we passed out with 55 blokes. Um, not all original, obviously, but um, about, well, almost half were back troopers, but we were marching onto that parade square to the sound of Thunderbirds. We were a very long, long troop. And I think good credit to us that we managed to, you know, keep it all in time and do all the, the synchronized drill. Got a picture of you here Andy. um, if I had to guess, I'd say you were in Northern Ireland, you're carrying a GPMG.
0: Yeah. Always the case. Shortest guy joins the unit gets the biggest weapon.
1: <laughs> yeah, I had to carry the eighty four in Norway, and oh God, just that just makes you skiing a whole lot a whole lot harder. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was this um, where was this Fermanagh or somewhere like this? Uh, I was based at Fork Hill, Northern Ireland. Fork Hill, right? So we're doing the rural stuff, not urban. Did you see? Um, did you see much action? Did you
0: lose anybody? We did, uh, just after the second week. Uh, and it's strange, when we arrived, we were actually told, you know, be very, very careful after two weeks and towards the end of the tour. Um, basically, what they did doing the first two weeks is watching you, looking for any potential weaknesses. And what they did, they um, had a stolen car, put for a force registration on the local car, re it to the local car colors. The only thing different was the aerial, instead of a short aerial, the long aerial. And I was actually on foot patrol, and we'd just finished patrolling the village. And as we went back in, the next patrol would go now, and I actually passed a guy called Dusty Miller. He had a very short haircut, I was like, wow, is that the price you pay for r and uh, Literally, the time I got to my room and put my weapon down, there was this huge explosion that shook the building, dust went everywhere. And you ran outside and all you saw was this column of smoke. And Apparently when they came out of the gate, the first thing they got confronted with was this car. So they did a plate check and it was our local car seen every day of the week. So the patrol started to go down the road and they didn't really get a lot of chance to spread out. And when basically whoever put the car there was watching And Dusty got up to the car and peered through the window to look inside. They pressed the trigger. They caught the full blast. The radio operator on the opposite side of the road got blown over the wall with a on his leg. He gave a contact report and got asked, what's happening? And he replied, how do I know? I'm over a bloody wall. Um, And we went straight into lockdown. We weren't allowed to go patrol. They brought another regiment in to conduct our patrols just to make sure everyone calmed down. And then towards the end of the um, tour, someone across the Glen was killed the last two weeks. So what was predicted at the beginning, happened on the actual tour.
1: Yes, it was uh, serious business over there, wasn't it?
0: It was just so strange doing the patrols because I felt like I was walking around Devon, beautiful country. And the locals wouldn't talk to you, but in the evening, if they passed you, they would apologise not being able to talk to you because they just never knew who was watching. Just a crazy environment.
1: Yes, it was. We were in the city, so Belfast, and uh, you know, walking around with essentially what is a machine gun was just. I mean, it could have been Exeter. It could have been you know, could have been Birmingham or somewhere. It's like you're in Britain or, or, Ireland, whichever side of the fence you sit on. Um, it's just a major, major, a major city. And there's you 19 years old carrying an automatic rifle and stopping people, you know, twice your age. Um, not just stopping people twice your age, but stopping IRA players twice your age. So, Bizarre experience.
0: The only I find funny is when you look at the pictures of that time when you just finished training, how baby face we looked. I'm thinking, at the time, I was thinking, Royal Commando, Macho. And look at the pictures now, I was like, I look like a kid. Yes. I'm just going to see, did I... Um,
1: I'm not sure if I got that picture up for people at home. I'm just going to zoom in on it. The, the one in the... Uh, in the sticks in northern ireland so there we go folks in case you didn't see that one and to finish off andy i'd like to talk about this accolade here that you won um it says on it hang on i'm just going to write a time code down because right faster in this job so yes courage for leadership uh unself unselfishness cheerfulness determination courage yes i'm not oh for leadership yes so is that the commando
0: medal that's the commando medal Once presented in training to the the troop.
1: And what did
0: you do to earn
1: that, other than obviously being a good commando recruit?
0: i I wasn't expecting it. I just assumed you were probably going to one of the, the popular guys in the troop. Um, I can only think in the sense that um, on the actual training side, I was one of the shortest guys there. But when you look at like the endurance course, I remember coming through a training run on that, and the Sergeant Smith gave me a real bollocking. Where you been? And he just laid into me while I was still trying to recover. And he got his clipboard out. I said, Where did you start? I said, oh, I was about the fourth group out. And then he apologized. I actually come in at like 64 minutes. As opposed to a lot of other people who got around 72 minutes. And I was those two in the troop, reached the core finals in boxing. And more for the fact that when they did the draw, the boxing, all the useless ones like me were in one half, all the good ones in the other half. So when I got to the final, the guy who boxed was actually a box himself, it was like 60 fights beforehand, who lost weight, came to my division. And having reached the final, I remember looking in the mirror thinking, have I got talent? I don't know. We well, soon sorted that one out, he decked me three times. Uh-huh. I had the canvas. Oh, dear. Well, a sledgehammer. I suddenly realised I'm in deep trouble. And the referee counted me out, even though I was standing, there, I was like, you know, I'm happy with that. Because there's only going to be one winner on that one. So why I got it, I, I don't know. But as far I always remain positive, you know, I just don't believe in neg- neg- negativity. It doesn't get you anywhere. Always think positive, always just think at some point it's going to stop. Well, I, I was quite shocked it's nice to my two brothers my parents and then King Squad to see me actually see it.
1: Absolutely brilliant. And uh, it sounds like really well deserved. And it's um, not surprising you've gone on to do all that you've done, Andy.
0: It's not over.
1: No. <laughs> hey, that's what you're speaking for both of us there. Although things do seem to... Um, take different priorities once once you become a parent, but I'm, I'm yeah, new, I'm new to this parenting game. You're, you're coming out the, the other end or the, 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 the part where the birds, the birds fly the nest. Is it the babies fly the nest? They've left the nest. Yeah. Yes. Andy, listen, it's been an absolutely fascinating, um, chat. What a credit to the Royal Marines. And, uh, Big hello to all the Royal Marines watching. Um, I hope you're going to come back and chat to us again. Love to. And just on behalf of the Bought the T-shirt podcast and myself, massive, massive, massive thank you. Just just stay on the line, Andy, when I say goodbye to um, to our friends at home, then I'm going to come back and thank you properly. So to everybody at home, um, you saw the cover of Andy's book. The link is going to be below uh, Andy's contact if you if you need to get hold of him if he wants you to. That is, he'll he'll give me and I'll put that below the video. So grab yourself a copy of of uh, Andy's book. Massive love to you all. Please look after yourselves. Um, if you can like and subscribe and click the little bell thing so you get notified of the next podcast, that would be hoofing. Ciao